traditional antidepressant treatment takes weeks, months to actually work. If it does work right, that's sort of that's one of the most striking things about psychedelics is that the efficacy seems to be apparent, but you know, almost immediately, like within a day or two, certainly within a week. I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Al Levin, the host of The Depression Files, and I am very excited today. We have Natalie Gukasian from Johns Hopkins on the air. Dr. Gukasian is a psychiatrist and postdoctoral research fellow at Johns Hopkins University. After receiving her MD from Tulane University School of Medicine, Dr. Gukasian completed her internship and residency in psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. Her current research at the Johns Hopkins Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit focuses on the feasibility and efficacy of novel treatment strategies including psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for mood, addictive, and eating disorders. Dr. Gukasian is also a clinician at the Johns Hopkins Bayview Community Psychiatry Program, serving patients with co-occurring mental illness and addictive disorders. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gukasian. Thank you so much for having me. Psychedelics and the Treatment of Mental Illnesses, you know, it just seems these days that that uh, the the research around treatment for depression and other mental illnesses, such as antidepressants, have kind of come to a halt. And it's it's exciting to see that there are other possibilities out there. Wonder, yeah, wondering if you could start. Just curious about how you got into the field of psychology. Um, well, I, so I'm a psychiatrist, and um, it was kind of a long and somewhat winding road. <laughs> uh, I was always interested in the brain and the mind and sort of the mind-body kind of relationship. Um, back in college, I worked in a psychology laboratory as an undergrad, 
I considered, so I was trying to figure out, you know, do I want to do a career in research or do more of a clinical career? I sort of shadowed all sorts of different people along the way and ultimately decided I wanted to sort of work with people in some capacity. Um, and the, the path that seemed to be the most viable for that was to do it through um, the field of medicine. Um, I wasn't sure exactly where I would end up. I always kind of had it in the back of my mind that I was interested in sort of matters of the mind and the brain, but I was also open to other sorts of career paths. And for a moment, or a prolonged moment, um, I explored surgery as a career. I sort of worked at a cardiothoracic surgery lab, um, and I really enjoyed it. I loved working with my hands, and um, I, I really seriously considered going into surgery for a very long time. And so I ended up going to med school, and ultimately the surgical path that I found was really not for me. And sort of the, the realization clicked, I ended up on my psychiatry rotation, and and a lot of things kind of came up. Meaning that, like you know, I really realized that I really loved being able to actually talk to my patients, spend time with them. I loved like the colleagues that I had on on my psychiatry rotations, um, and I loved what we did for patients day to day. Um, and in addition, it was sort of an opportunity to. Um, sort of focus on some of the things that I've been reading up on in my free time. So even when I was doing all this scans in my free time, I'd be looking into what was going on in, in sort of neuroscience and psychology, psychiatry, and in particular in this field of psychedelics. And so ultimately I just sort of thought, well, you know, if any, like, and if I, if I went into psychiatry, this would also be an opportunity for sort of this pipe dream kind of career idea that I had of someday maybe working with these very intriguing substances clinically. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have ended up where I did. So I, I did sort of end up specializing in psychiatry, matched at Johns Hopkins, which is, uh, you know, an epicenter of this kind of research. And, um, yeah, I've been really fortunate to sort of have the opportunity to do this kind of work. That's really interesting. So even before you really special decided to specialize in psychiatry, um, psychedelics were on your mind specifically. Yeah, I remember back when I was in college, I was studying a major was in the Department of Nutritional Sciences, and I was just fascinated by the fact that we have all these, uh, you know, there's like an epidemic of lifestyle-associated illnesses like obesity, diabetes. Um, I know in the classroom I was learning that like, hey, you know, you could reverse or like fix a lot of these issues with just, you know, a handful of lifestyle-associated changes, but making those behavior changes is extremely difficult. Meanwhile, you know, all these this is around the time some of those first papers were published from the laboratory I'm part of now, showing that, you know, just a couple of doses of this drug in a supportive setting was associated with really long-lasting changes in behavior and mood. Um, and a sense of meaning, um, and it was the first time that it had been demonstrated in like a like a scientific context. It was extremely exciting, and I thought, well, maybe this is one way, something that we can leverage to um, help make people uh, make it easier for people to make changes in their lives of all sorts. That is, uh, but at the time, it was like it was kind of it was still very much a fringe area of study. <laughs> right. You know, in research, a lot of a lot of things hinge on funding. Um, and at the time, it didn't really seem that there was very much funding available to do that kind of work. Uh, fortunately, that's changed a lot over the last um, several years. That is really cool. Got into psychiatry, and now you're there at Johns Hopkins, about to become faculty, correct? Yeah, that's, yeah, so that's very exciting. Yeah, congratulations to you. I don't think there are too many Thank people you. who have that kind of 
you know, their pathway lined up from that young of an age and then actually are able to attain it as well. Like, how exciting is that? And then to see, like you said, at the time, the funding was so limited. And, and now it seems like there are lots of different avenues to get the funding and finally some some real backing, allowing that research to move forward, which is so exciting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of, to clarify that point, you know, there's a lot of private funding available. Um, there's still a bit of a, there's still a bit of difficulty with getting traditional routes of publicly available funding. So a lot of research and you know, mental health and all sorts of other um, clinical conditions are funded through, like the National Institutes of Health, the NIH. Um, but getting funding for psychedelic research has been challenged through that mechanism for you know one reason or another for a very long time. Um, in part, it's because these studies are just very expensive to do with humans, right? Because of the um, requires a lot of clinician time and um, staffing issues, and so you know even small studies can run really, really expensive. Um, and in order to do good quality research, you usually need large numbers of patients to go through the studies. So that's one part of why um, it's been hard to get that kind of traditional sort of funding. But like, as you said, you know, there's been a, a, a huge upsurge in, in public interest in the past, you know, decade or so. Right. It's still growing. And, you know, each, you know, the past years, I thought, you know, two years ago was a big year for psychedelics, but this past year was, was also yeah. a big one. And it, it hasn't been that long, has it, that the FDA approved it for research? Well, it was technically never quite um, banned per se. So the you know the history around psychedelics is pretty interesting. Um, research, clinical research with psychedelics, kind of started around um, the 1950s. So that was back when you, know, you might have heard of Albert Hoffman, who synthesized LSD and you know put it on the shelf for several years, and then one day accidentally it self-administered some and realized that this had you know, some very interesting psychoactive properties. And the company he was working for said, well, you know, why don't we just, we can make this available for clinicians and researchers because somebody's got to be able to do something interesting with this stuff. And so they shipped supplies of LSD all over the world to various hospitals and research centers. And for a couple of decades, um, there was quite a lot of psychedelic research, probably, you know, more than there has been in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, but the problem was that the, you know, the design of these studies was not that rigorous. A lot of the research that came out was often just, you know, a couple of case reports, which is, you know, just describing kind of what happened to a series of patients. And it was hard to really make too many conclusions from that because it wasn't done in this kind of controlled fashion where you can compare people who did and did not receive the drug who were kind of similar to one another. You know, the tone of that earlier research was promising. There was, it looked like, you know, there, there were sort of increasing numbers of good quality studies starting to come out. But unfortunately, you know, as a lot of people know, these drugs kind of escaped the laboratory and widespread public use of these substances really made uh, the government concerned. And so they did sort of clamp down um, and, and say like, well, you know, research around these substances is going to be a little bit more difficult. You know, they were scheduled under the Controlled Substances Act as being um, very high risk with very little clinical utility. Um, and it's not that the research with these substances was fully banned. You know, a lot of, a lot of research still went on animal models and things like that. 
but in order to do it, right, you know, the, the FDA did have to say that, yes, you have permission to sort of to work with these substances. And so it sort of everything was lying dormant for a couple of decades. It wasn't until um, the 90s, one of the first um, studies that sort of came back with, psych- with using psychedelics in humans. It was done by Rick Strassman, um, where he used uh, DMT, which is a very potent but very short-acting um, psychedelic drug in healthy participants, and it kind of went from there and gradually sort of centers all over the world started doing more of this work, including here at Hopkins and places out in Europe. Right. And there's been a growing number of these um, researchers doing work with, with psychedelics and humans since then. Right. Were those early researches dealing with necessarily working with mental illnesses and psychedelics, or were they just the use of psychedelics in general, those early in the 50s, 60s? So um, a lot of it actually was in people who had mental health issues. Part of the difficulty in interpreting all of those um, studies and, and publications in, like the, uh, through a modern lens is that there's, there's a bunch of problems. One is that the terminology around mental illness was different, right? Back then, there was all sorts of like, you know, this and that neurosis and, you know, like different sorts of terminology for, for, for the illnesses that we've sort of prized today. So it's kind of hard to, to sort of really understand sometimes, you know, what kind of patients they were using these in. There was a lot of research in people with addictive disorders. So alcohol use disorder was pretty, um, pretty commonly sort of studied. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, various types of quote-unquote neuroses. So people who might be described as being anxious or depressed or having obsessive compulsive disorder today, but it's sometimes hard to really interpret exactly who they were, who they meant. Right. And is it true that I had read that really the resurgence, with the resurgence of wanting to do research again with psychedelics, really the researchers had to kind of figure out what would be the easiest pathway for the FDA to approve. And then going to the FDA, the FDA actually opened it up wider than they had anticipated. Well, so, I mean, I I could tell you just about a little bit about what I know about what happened at Hopkins. You know, they had to really, part of it was that they, the people who approached the FDA asking for permission to do this kind of work were already established researchers and, you know, very well known for having, for doing rigorous and safe research. And part of the proposal involved sort of laying out all these different safety measures that would happen during the studies. So they had to be very, very careful and say, you know, like we're going to have not just one person in the room, but two people in the room just so that the person's never left alone. If somebody needs to step out, um, we're going to be monitoring their vital signs just to make sure that they don't have hypertensive crisis or some other medical emergency that we could sort of detect. You know, there's sort of rescue medications available if somebody has a really bad reaction or, you know, a really high blood pressure or something like that. So part of it was just sort of saying, you know, how are we going to make this safe? How are we going to ensure that this is not going to hurt the, the people who, who, are, um, who, are, who are volunteering to, to do this kind of work? You know, luckily, psychedelics are actually quite safe when compared to other kinds of medications, you know, the, there's this concept known as the um, therapeutic index, right, which is for any drug, 
there's a dose narrow therapeutic index. So the effective dose is quite close to what's, what's toxic potentially in people. So they have to be monitored very, very carefully for psychedelics. The effective dose is much like orders of magnitude smaller than the toxic dose. Um, and so luckily there's, there's actually, you know, it's, it's, it's usually quite safe to do this in a laboratory setting as, as long as we're screening people ahead of time who don't have, and sort of avoid giving it to people who might have them and things like that. So in general, it's, it's, right. we, we, we make it quite safe to do. Is there, is there actually a toxicity level with psilocybin? So yes, there is. And, and part of it is that it's, you know, the dose is so high. Um, often this is really only studied in animals. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to really translate exactly what, what dose in an animal would be toxic as compared to humans in particular. That was pretty um, striking. I remember <laughs> reading it pretty clearly about it. Um, there was a group of people at a party, I think it was eight of them, um, and they had uh, assumed there was some, you know, powdered substance floating around the party, and everybody had assumed it was cocaine, but actually it was LSD. And so the, you know, the effective dose of LSD is on the order M, so not even like milligrams. So like think of like one thousandth of a milligram. And people were basically took something like you know eight thousand times the effective dose and took it all at once intranasally. And those people did suffer some pretty serious consequences, but um, they ended up in the ICU. Some of them had really severe internal bleeding, but ultimately all of them survived. It takes a lot to, to cause damage, but, it, but you, know, you can do damage. And, and through the research, are, is there anywhere near the toxic level that people are getting to? So no, no, no. So it's, it would be, it's, it's really nowhere near that. So the dose, right. so we work primarily with psilocybin for now at Johns Hopkins and the, the dose that, that it takes to produce what we call, you know, a, a moderate to sort of high intensity experience is about 20 to 30 milligrams in an average weight person. And it would take, you know, grams, like, you know, at least you know, 10, hundred times more than that to, to really produce any serious adverse consequences. You know, part of it, if you give somebody a really high dose, they might just be um, affected for a longer time with the acute psychoactive effects, but it's not, it's not like they're going to be hurt by it permanently. Right, right, right. So which types of mental illnesses is the research being done with at Johns Hopkins? So we're, um, you know, fortunate to have received a lot of funding. I mean, it, it actually, like right when I came on the scene, the other faculty members who were on there before sort of managed to solicit a group of donors for a really generous gift. So that's provided funding for five years of research on a variety of different topics. At Hopkins, it, it started out primarily in healthy volunteers, just because we had to prove that it was safe um, to use. And the first way to do that is to start in healthy people. And gradually over time, it's moved into more clinical populations. So probably the first more clinical trial would have been in people who had end-stage cancer and were also suffering with anxiety and depressive symptoms as a result of their diagnosis. Um, and there's also been work in people with uh, tobacco addiction. There's been work in people with major depressive disorder. Some of that is still ongoing. Um, there are... 
you know, a lot of new studies that are just launched or, or sort of being planned. So my, my study works in people with anorexia nervosa, um, just launched a study in people with mild cognitive impairment from Alzheimer's disease who have co-occurring depression. We're soon launching a study in people with co-occurring major depressive disorder and alcohol use disorder. Uh, there's another project that's going to be launching also soon in people with um, post-treatment Lyme disease and um, post-traumatic stress disorder is also planned. OCD is planned. So there's a lot of a lot of things in the pipeline, but those are the yeah. things with Senate Hopkins. That's pretty pretty incredible. I have to say, my first thought when you first mentioned nicotine, my first thought was there are so many different avenues for treating nicotine addiction, yet major depression, we're looking at still typically taking an antidepressant that you wait four to six weeks to see right. if it has an impact. And then if it doesn't, you take another antidepressant right. for four to six weeks. And if yeah. that doesn't work, you might change a different classification. Like, my God, like in depression, having gone through two major bouts myself, mm -hmm. I feel like that's, that, I hope that's on the high priority list. And and that's not to say those others aren't important. My goodness, Alzheimer's, so many of those are are critical, but you know, as a person who has struggled with two major bouts of depression and knowing how debilitating right. it can get and suicidal, right? I had suicidal ideation and and the antidepressants, it's it's kind of depressing to think about how long you have to wait to see if it will even have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. So that's those are all excellent points. And actually major depressive disorder is on track to probably become if if, if psilocybin does show that it's efficacious and safe. Uh, major depressive disorder is probably the first indication that it's going to be approved for. Oh, that um, would be awesome. Yeah, so like all of the larger. So in order to get a drug approved, and of course you start with these small studies and healthy people just to make sure that it's safe and you sort of move into these safety, efficacy, feasibility studies that are larger and larger. And so right now, the only like phase two studies that um, psilocybin is being studied for, um, it's, it's sort of in, in people with major depressive disorder. There's two big entities right now that are leading okay. those, those studies. So one is um, USONA Institute, that's who we're working with. Um, and they're, they're sort of right now conducting, they're in the middle of this um, phase two study for major depressive disorder. Um, there's like awesome. seven sites across the country and um, you know part of that's been impacted by COVID, unfortunately. Right, um, right. And the other group is called Compass, uh, and they, they're sort of, they might be a little bit further ahead, but their indication that they are studying it for is treatment-resistant depression. And so, you know, there's a little bit of variation in how that's defined, but generally means that people have failed, you know, two or more solid trials of an antidepressant medication, which for many people with depression is the case, like you said. Right. Um, so, so are some of the, um, would this ever be a first-line medication rather than treatment-resistant depression? Could it be used as a first-line treatment for someone with major depressive disorder? Yeah, so that's that's sort of the the angle that USONA Institute is taking. They're not putting any criteria around how many trials of medication you need, need to have had. Um, and some of the patients in, in the USONA study, at least who have come through our site, have not really necessarily had a solid trial of an antidepressant before. Right. Um, but, but like to your point, though, about the fact that 
traditional antidepressant treatment takes weeks, months to actually work. If it does work, right, that's sort of, that's one of the most striking things about psychedelics is that even though most of the research so far is, is in these pretty small groups, um, the, if the efficacy seems to be apparent, but you know, almost immediately, like within a day or two, certainly within a week. Ah, that is incredible. Yeah. It was interesting to hear you say that it was first, the research was first conducted on healthy individuals. Mm-hmm. And and that was, I, I know you said to really check for the safety of the psychedelics, but what what kind of results came out from the study of healthy individuals? So, I mean, one of the, one of the more widely known studies um, I think it was 2006 or 2008, the primary uh, finding that it demonstrated was sort of emphasized there was the fact that these substances can produce really profound, uh, meaningful, sometimes spiritually significant experiences for people, and they can do so safely. So that was one of the first findings. And then, you know, afterwards they followed these people for, you know, months, a year, and they found that some of the benefits from the experience, even though it had occurred so long ago, seemed to have persisted. So people months down the line, even a year down the line, will attribute you know, positive changes in their mood, in their relationships, in their behavior, to having had this psilocybin experience. Do you see that having any kind of implications on actually legalizing it for, those, for healthy individuals with psychedelic-assisted therapy? That's a that's a big question, right? You know, like, well, this you know, is it is this something that, that everybody could benefit from, not just people with depression? And it's it's kind of hard to say what that might look like, right? Because it's right now it's a controlled substance. Um, in order for it to be used clinically, all these studies right now are being done. They're going to have to show that it is indeed efficacious and safe on a larger scale. Once that is in hand once that data is available. And, and if it does actually show that that's the case, that it's safe and effective, the next step would be this legislative process to reschedule psilocybin or whatever whatever other psychedelic this, this process happens for, right? And that data will be available for people with major depressive disorder. It's not going to be available for healthy, healthy people necessarily. And the other thing is that it's, you know, there's a, there's a question about this medical model overall for psychedelics, right? Because since the 60s, you know, millions of people have used psychedelics, and many of those people seem to have had, you know, fond memories or feel like they would, they have benefited from it. Um, and a lot of those people were healthy. They didn't necessarily do it for some clinical reason. But, um, but it is sort of like a, a, a weird kind of blurry boundary, right? Because, you know, like I'm, I'm a clinician, I'm a physician, I sort of work with people who are suffering with, um, with various kinds of issues. Uh, to say that somebody, to, to, you know, to recommend that somebody have this kind of experience, it's a little, it's a bit of a stretch for me. Right. Um, but, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of other, you know, it's possible, sure, like, of course, you know, like I said, many, many people have done this before just on their own, not necessarily in a clinical setting. One point there is that it's expensive to do it in a clinical setting. Um, right. It requires right now the model is having two clinicians in the room with you for an entire day for the actual experience for the for the drug administration session, and then there's sort of you know preparatory meetings that you do with both of these people, and integration or follow up meetings that happen, 
And so it ends up being actually quite expensive. Most of the cost comes from clinician time. Right. And so right. for the average person to just, you know, insurance is not going to pay for this just because you feel like <laughs> you need to have it, you know. Right. Um, so that's like one limiting factor. But but you're asking, I think, you know, about just decriminalization or legalization, which is sort of happening already in many places. You might have, in your audience might have seen in the news over the past year that various localities are decriminalizing um, the possession of these substances and sort of their naturally occurring forms, right? So like psilocybin mushrooms, for example, in D.C. and Oregon. Um, and it's following kind of the same pattern as cannabis did, you know, over the past 10 years or so, where, where sort of individual states or cities are saying, you know, we're not going to prioritize um, the policing of, of those rules or we're going to say it's not actually an offense anymore. Um, and on the one hand, you know, and I get the other the other caveat here is that the, you know, the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research does not have an official position on any of this legalization or decriminalization stuff because it is very controversial still. Right, right. You know, personally, I don't I, I don't see too much benefit in throwing people in jail for the possession of this or that substance. I don't think that's that's helpful for anybody. It's very expensive to society. It's expensive to the people who get incarcerated for it in terms of, you know, like time loss with family. And it, and it often doesn't really necessarily result in um, rehabilitation for them. Right. Like it's, that's what, that's what it's not supposed right, to do. Right. It just doesn't happen. Right. Um, so on the one hand, you know, like I don't think it's right to have been throwing people in jail for that. On the other hand, the fact that these substances are being increasingly legalized means that, more people will be using them, obviously. And with that, you know, there there is a risk that there will be more um, sort of harms that come from it, right? Because there are people who would be vulnerable to having, uh, <clears throat> like one of the biggest things that we're concerned about, um, concerned with preventing in our, in our laboratory is sort of precipitating a manic or a psychotic episode, which is a very real risk. And it's a real risk in people who, have like a personal or first degree relative history of um, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And if this is out in the world, you know, there's no one to sort of evaluate somebody to say, Oh yes, you know, this, this will probably be safe or this may not be safe. And so there, there's, there's going to be a risk that there's going to be some more harms that are apparent from, from the use of these substances just out in the world. Uh, so it's a bit of a complicated and mixed sort of issue. Yeah. So if somebody does have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or has experienced a psychosis in their life, does that automatically weed them out of the Johns Hopkins research? So um, for the studies we have now, yes, that's the case. So if somebody, you know, we usually review a person's family history, their personal psychiatric history. There's a long screening process that happens before we accept somebody as a, as a participant in the study. But, you know, Back in the day, like in this first wave of research, um, people that we now think of as having bipolar disorder, even schizophrenia, were the recipients of, of substances like LSD and psilocybin with mixed results. And there's been a, there's been some interest lately in, in sort of doing a more structured experiment or um, study with with these substances and people who have for example, bipolar spectrum disorder. So there's a couple of planned studies right now 
and there might be one at our site potentially we're not we're still sort of working on what that might look like of um, psilocybin for people with bipolar 2 disorder so that's the sort of storthogus you know the less severe version of bipolar disorder it's still on the bipolar spectrum and it's still right. probably will be um, come with increased risk yeah but it's, we're sort of working on it basically it's an evolving issue yeah well, that's awesome, too, because I know some people who live with bipolar disorder and it mm-hmm. just seems like, uh, you know, like they're constantly daily managing their medications mm-hmm. and monitoring their own well-being as to whether or not they be may, may be going into a mania or mm-hmm. and then into a, a debilitating depression. So to, to hear that research may evolve into bipolar disorder or schizophrenia is really awesome as well. Um, so I'm curious, can you... I haven't even asked yet if you could describe in as much layperson's term as possible how the psilocybin works. Yeah, so um and and also sorry to interrupt but yeah. also the fact that that it is used to treat so many different addictions and illnesses and so forth like why is that and is there a similarity that you have all found between alcoholism and depression and anorexics and so forth? Great question. <laughs> so this is going to be a long answer. Let me adjust <laughs> okay. my desk here. So when we think about um, how these substances work, there's been kind of like, there's, there's two, two kinds of answers, right? And um, one caveat with all this also is that we're, we're still very much in the middle of understanding exactly what's actually going on in the brain of somebody who ingests a psychedelic drug. But there's there's sort of you know there's biological sorts of answers about like well this you know receptor does this and then there's more of this neurotransmitter happening and these parts of the brain communicate more with each other. And there's also sort of um, explanations having to do with the personal subjective experiences that people have you know how people are actually feeling. Um, during the drug administration, subacutely in the days and weeks following, and then just years down the road, sort of what people are saying about their experiences. So, in the, in the first bucket of explanations is biological stuff, right? So, um, classic psychedelics, and this is a group of drugs that includes psilocybin, LSD, dimethyltryptamine, and a handful of other drugs all work primarily by uh, by their function on a specific type of serotonin receptor. It's called the 5-HT2A receptor. Um, the 5-HT2A receptor is, is found in many parts of the brain. In particular, it's found in parts of the cortex, so like you know, the outer parts of your brain, and especially in the prefrontal cortex, um, which, which sort of does a lot of executive functioning. It's also found in something called the colostrum, which mediates communication between the parts of the brain that deal with mood and the parts of the brain that deal with you know, thinking, cognition, analyzing that mood, planning, things like that. Um, so basically, these substances will attach to this 5-HT2A receptor. Um, they will turn it on in a specific way. A lot of things happen as a result of turning that receptor on. We're still trying to figure out exactly what those things are. Some of it involves a neurotransmitter called glutamate, um, which excites parts of the brain. And we know that you know, a lot of people might have seen this really 
nice diagram that's been floating around for the past uh, handful of years of, you know, an MRI scan of somebody who's not on psychedelics versus an MRI scan of somebody who's actively on psychedelics, um, showing that when someone is just laying in a scanner on a normal day, not having ingested a very powerful <laughs> psychoactive drug, um, you know, parts of the brain are communicating with each other. Um, it, it often tends to be like parts of the brain that are geographically kind of like closer to one another. And then when you add in psychedelics, parts of the brain that are geographically distant talk more with each other. There's just a lot more crosstalk. All sorts of new connections are happening that just weren't there uh, when the person was in their normal state. So that's one thing we know is that when someone is acutely ingesting psychedelics, there is a lot more crosstalk between parts of the brain that don't normally talk to each other. Um, and, and that crosstalk is is just seen or understood to be a positive consequence? So that's the thing. We don't know if it's like positive or okay. negative. And the other thing we don't know is whether that actually bears any relation to some of these longer-term experiences that people have of clinical improvement, right? Right, the outcomes. So that's something we're still very much trying to figure out. You know, there was a study released this year by a colleague at the center, Fred Barrett, where he took 12 healthy people um, and he scanned their brains uh, before and a week after and a month after psilocybin. And he found that compared to before psilocybin, the people uh, one week out actually had reduced brain response to um, certain types of emotional stimuli. So it's, so it's actually, it's been apparent that like uh, up to a week later, there's, there's like visible change in how the brain responds to like negative emotional stimuli. There's sort of less sensitive to negative emotional stimuli. And then a month later, that, that activity looks a little bit more like normal. However, people are still saying that they still feel improved. They still feel like more positive. Um, their mood is better. And so it's not clear that the changes in, that we can detect with something like a brain scan necessarily always correspond to the way that somebody is feeling. So it's a really complicated kind of thing. So like, what the heck is happening? Short answers. We're still we're still kind of trying to understand what that is. Right. Because it's it's unusual, right? Like you know, with antidepressants, it, you take it day after day after day, and in order to get an effect, you have to wait weeks, months. And here, there's there's a change that's apparent almost immediately. Right. Um. So the other the other thing we know about the biological mechanism of psychedelics is that. This isn't the case for all psychedelics, but, but to some degree, they do tend to have uh, anti-inflammatory properties. So psilocybin does, in fact, have anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and as you may know, you know some, in, in some cases, it's clear that there's uh, an inflammatory aspect of depression. And so one, one mechanism that it might work uh, by for depression is to reduce inflammation um, throughout the body. Right. I've heard that described as even possibly an infection in the brain that causes swelling. Yeah. In some cases, you know, people can have a, a, an Ill, like a physical illness and, and sort of come out the other end with depression. You know, that's sort of happening right. for COVID now. There's a lot of anxiety and depression that people are reporting after having been ill with COVID. Right. So that's another sort of mechanism. The other thing that's sometimes mentioned is this default mode network. Um, and so the default mode network just refers to the fact that like when you or I are, you or I are just sitting here, you know, there's, there's sort of communi communication that happens between different parts of our brain. Um, and it's thought to 
reflect sort of this, you know, self-reflective process of like, you know, just different parts of the brain kind of checking in with each other. And that's just sort of a normal, natural state. And so for people with depression, um, parts of that default mode network are a little, um, can, can sort of change in how they function. Parts can either talk to each other too much compared to healthy people or too little compared to healthy people. And so we know that after psychedelics, the default mode network can, can sort of change and, and sort of what parts of the brain are naturally just talking to each other when you're just sitting here. So it might mean that there, it might sort of reflect the fact that your just your general kinds of thought process, conscious or unconscious, are a little bit different after psychedelics. And are they are you anticipating that that has changed permanently or also for a period of time that's maybe not yet known? So we don't know yet. That's another big question as to you know how frequently somebody might need this kind of treatment in order right. to stay well. That's something we're still very much need to, to understand and figure out, right? I think one way to think about it sometimes, you know, like with depression, you can have, people can have like ruminative negative thoughts, and a lot of them are in reference to the self, right? Yeah. Um, and so one, one idea is that maybe psychedelics kind of break that loop that happens and allow the person to, to sort of try to focus on other things or sort of move their thought process to something else. Right. Um, but that association has not really been clearly demonstrated necessarily in a laboratory kind of setting. Right. So, so those are some of the biological things that, that are kind of going on. And there's also this, this bu- other bucket of explanations about how psychedelics work having to do with um, the fact that, like, you know, one of these first studies demonstrated, right, that the psychedelic experience can be extremely personally meaningful or spiritually significant. And in, in one study, at least, they found that the the degree to which an experience was described as uh, as meeting criteria for a mystical experience, um, the more mystical it was, the more closely associated it was with positive outcomes. And people hear that term mystical experience, they're kind of um, up in arms or confused about it, but really it's like it's just a simple sort of term to describe a collection of um, phenomenological characteristics of, of being, and it sort of encompasses a, you know, a feeling of oneness, of connection, of ineffability. So, like some ex- like an aspect of the experience that can't be described in words, um, feeling of unity, things like that. Um, it's not necessarily applying any sort of supernatural meaning or anything like that. It's just saying that somebody had this experience that they thought was incredibly meaningful and in some cases spiritual. Um, and so in, in one sense, like maybe that has something to do with it, that somebody has this profound sense of meaning for the first time in a long time. Um, and that sort of is associated with all these nice outcomes that we see. The other, the other things that we've, um, that have been looked at have been, you know, there's a thought that the psychedelic experience in some sense is, kind of similar to um, a state of mindfulness or that it can make it easier to achieve a state of mindfulness. And it kind of goes back to this default mode network thing about, you know, what's happening to your brain when you're just sitting there just in a default state. Um, Are you able to sort of detach from your thoughts, which in a depressed person can be really negative and sort of be present in the moment instead. Um, So in some, in some studies they've demonstrated that people, do you have an easier time with experiencing some of these mindfulness states? 
Um, there's also a study that showed that um, some of these benefits that we see are mediated by changes in cognitive flexibility. So cognitive inflexibility is a, is a part of a lot of clinical disorders, right? So like with depression, a lot of the inflexibility can be around, you know, self-worth or um, other sorts of, you know, thoughts about the self. Um, and eating disorders, that's that's kind of, you know, rigid ideas about food and weight and body shape. In addiction, it's rigid, it's rigid thoughts about, you know, like, you know, if I have an urge to use, then I must use a drug. And so some study, one study has demonstrated that the Increases in cognitive flexibility um, can explain part of the benefit. Um, another benefit, and I've been going on for a long time here, is a lot. But another benefit is, um, or another possible mechanism is psychological insight. So some people explain that having gone through this psychedelic experience, they come out the other end with um, a new insight or a new, like just a, a deeper appreciation of an insight that they already had for something going on in their life with their relationship with with you know the, what they're doing with their career or their family in a way that they hadn't experienced before on a more visceral right. level. Is this second bucket a little difficult for researchers and scientists to really grasp and, and believe strongly in? So kind of the um, mystical side, it seems a, a little unscientific. Right. And again, even though it kind of sounds like it's it might be a little woo-woo or something. It's really, it's a, it's a well-validated measure that right. just describes, you know, subjective feelings that somebody may have. But you're right, the fact that it's a subjective experience, of course, makes it 100 times harder to study because our only way to interrogate that is to just ask people, you know, are you feeling this way or that way? Um, right. And people are not always the best reporters of their internal state. Um well, and even the, the definition that was given a, of a mystical experience is one that you can't really explain, right? Yeah. Part of it is that you cannot explain it in words or logical concepts. Right. Um, <laughs> which is which is difficult to, to wrap uh, one's head around in some places. But on the other hand, I think that's what makes, I think that's part of what makes these substances so compelling, right, is the fact that people, you know, you can have this kind of experience that's that's significant or rare, you know, like in, in one of the first studies, um, a very, like the majority of people describe this support of the psychedelic experience in a supportive setting as one of the most meaningful experiences of their lives. So on par with like the birth of a, a child or the death of a parent, right. um, which is really, <laughs> that means like just hearing that, right. Does it almost doesn't make sense, right? Like how could that possibly be? Right. Um, but that's what people are reporting. And, um, well, and, and I appreciate yeah. Johns Hopkins and the researchers like yourself, you know, considering that the mystical experience could have something to do with this, even though it's so difficult to measure as a scientist or a researcher. Yeah. And, you know, there's been other, other terms for it. Like some people um, prefer to describe it as like a peak experience or, a, you know, like a flow state in some cases, a kind of, has the same qualities as a mystical experience. Um, but in any case, you know, that's, I don't know, that's something you can ignore about, about the, what people are saying after they end by these kinds right. of experiences. So, um, and again, like at least in one study in healthy people, they did find that the more mystical somebody thought their experience was, the better outcomes they had. 
Right. Standard right. mode. Can you explain a little bit about, um, I hear the term like the loss of one's ego to reach that mystical place. Mm -hmm. um, what exactly is it to lose one's ego? Great question. <laughs> you got the hard-hitting questions today. <laughs> um, to, you know, well, I guess to start with is like, what is an ego? Um, if we go by like the Freud, I think there's, there's, there's different ideas of what an ego is, right? So in Freudian terms, you know, Freud said there's a superego, an ego, and an id. You know, your superego is this higher sort of entity in your mind, psychological entity that sort of is very, uh, it's sort of idealistic and it has all these rules in place and sort of tries to control the, the ego in some way, sort of laying out, you know, what's right and wrong in terms of behavior. Then there's the id, which is sort of like, you know, one's base urges or your animalistic kind of state that you would sort of go back into if there was no super ego around to keep it in check where you might just sit on the couch eating Cheetos and um, just living a very hedonistic life. Um, and in the middle of that is the ego that sort of has free will and sort of regulates input from both the super ego and the ego. Um, I think that what, what most, uh, so it's kind of related to that, right? But really I think what people mean when they say the ego is um, the sense of self, the idea of, you know, you as a, as a separate entity, that you have your own internal world with your own internal thoughts. Um, and I have my own internal world with my own thoughts and my own personality. And we go around in our day-to-day -day lives sort of living as this character and, you know, like interacting with people based on patterns of behavior we've had for a long time and sort of at any, at any given moment, right, either one of us just has a running monologue of thoughts in our head. I don't know if you've ever tried to meditate. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first time I tried to meditate, I remember, like, it was shocking to me to sit and, yeah. like, realize how many really random thoughts yeah. came into my head. It, it is amazing. Right. And um, a lot of us don't really realize it, and sort of, especially in Western society, um, I think it's the default to believe that whatever thoughts are running through your head at any given moment are you, that that's you, right? That's out. That's sort of whatever wacky monologue is going on that day. And for somebody with depression, that monologue can be mostly negative self-appraisal, you know, feeling down about oneself, about how yeah. hopeless everything is. So, right. So for people with depression, that ego is wrapped up in a lot of negative stuff, but there's another idea that maybe actually, you know, maybe it's part of you, but that's not necessarily the core of who, of who a person is, right? Because as we know, your thoughts can change on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you're still the same person that you were when you were a child, right? There's like some aspect of you that's persisted since that time that's, that we call Al, right? Right, right. But, you know, this ego changes as we, as we go through life. And for people with depression, the ego can pick up a lot of these negative, ruminative sorts of habits, um, through something like meditation, you, the, the goal is to kind of loosen your grip on, on that as, on the idea that that is you, right? Because there is something else that, that's there as the observer, right? There's like some entity that's sitting there and watching all this unfold and it's, it's sort of losing one's ego or a loss or a sort of a sense of ego dissolution, um, 
I think often sort of entails uh, an unraveling of this kind of thought process or, or a loss of association um, between somebody thinking that that's them sort of realizing that like, well, well, maybe there's something else. And for somebody with depression, that might actually be extremely therapeutic because you realize like, Oh, Hey, uh, maybe I'm not, maybe this like really negative stuff going on in my head is not actually true. Right. Like and these maybe thoughts that's not don't me. define me. Exactly. And then, so, and once that happens, um, and that's, that's something that can happen through mindfulness meditation, but like mindfulness is extremely hard to, similar to mystical experience, it's hard to actually explain in words what you want somebody to do when you're trying to get them to do mindfulness practice. Really, it sort of like takes a long time of like sitting there and just doing it because it's also something that's, that's sort of, you can't really explain it using words adequately, right? So mindfulness comes out of thousands of years of Buddhist tradition. And over thousands of years, the Buddhists were not able to sort of succinctly come up with an explanation of exactly what it is right, what you do because right. it transcends like logical concepts and words because there's something else like on the other side of that that you need to get to and in order to get there you have to transcend words and concepts and language and on the one hand it's very simple on the other hand it's very difficult to explain that to somebody who whose default way of being involves thinking that this running monologue of thoughts and concepts is the core of who they are Right. And a depression that's sort of like, that's even, that's, that's, there's even more of a tighter grip between a person's sense of self and that running monologue. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get back a little bit to the process of the research. I know there's a lot of talk about the importance of set and setting. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, um, so set and setting refers to kind of the conditions that um, a person has prior to their entry into this psychedelic experience, right? So that means their psychological set, sort of like who they are, their story, their culture, you know, their culture's ideas of what psychedelics are. That can really affect somebody's experience because if somebody comes in thinking that there's sort of like horrible, scary thing, then you might be more prone to have a negative experience. Setting involves just sort of the, the physical milieu of, of like what's going on, right? So like the room that you're doing it in, who you're with, um, what you had for breakfast that day, that kind of stuff. And so early on in research with psychedelics, back in like the 50s and 60s, it became apparent that the these conditions surrounding the psychedelic experience greatly influenced what happened when you went into the actual psychedelic drug experience. Um, and so over time, people have kind of tried to tweak the, the various elements involved in administering these drugs in order to optimize um, the benefit that somebody could have from, from doing it. And for that reason, there's, you know, there's been this kind of protocol that a lot of centers use. If, I don't know if you've ever read any of these papers or sort of seen the inside of like the room that we often administer psilocybin in, but it, looks, it doesn't look like a clinic room. It doesn't look like a, an office. It looks like a living room, basically. There's like a couch, there's two armchairs where the guides sit. There's like art on the walls. It's you know comfy and cozy. Right. And, so I'm curious. Yeah. In regards to the set, I would imagine part of the set is my understanding is typically a person doesn't come into the research and the first day receive psilocybin, but there are a few sessions ahead of time, and I would imagine that that's kind of assessing their set, their mindset, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. well as maybe even helping them 
create that mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that you're working with some people in some cases who have depression or major depression, mm-hmm. and you already spoke about the negative ruminations and so forth. So if you're dealing, where do you draw the line for, is this going to be okay with this person who is dealing with depression and their mindset? And is yeah. it not going to be okay? That's a great question. So, you know, back in the day when, when, when the guidelines were first being established, um, and sort of, you know, like the, the modern guidelines that, that are there used come out of our laboratory too, came from like Matt Johnson and William Griffiths and a handful of other people in our lab who um, sort of established that, yes, you should have these preparatory visits before the session. And the purpose of the visits um, is to build rapport. In part is to build rapport between the patient and the two people who are going to be working with that person throughout the study. Um because it could be a very vulnerable experience, right, where you're kind of like thrown into this potentially confusing, ineffable, can't even explain it kind of state. Um, it, it's a very good idea for the person who's going through that to that they, they for them to be able to trust the people who they're with, right? And so part of it is just to develop a sense of trust between the staff and the participant, um, because that in and of itself, we know is is therapeutic. And we know that just from like regular psychotherapy research that actually a lot of the benefit that people have from any kind of psychotherapy happens in part because of this relationship that's built between patients and and providers. Absolutely. I always tell people like that relationship is so important. And if you don't click, look for a new therapist. Exactly. Yeah. And so part of it, yeah. And so the preparation happens um, typically over the course of about eight hours of total face-to-face time. Um, it could be more or less, depends on the study or sort of what, what you're trying to do there. But in healthy people, it started out as just a basic life review. And so the, the patient will just kind of go through like what has led them to this point that they're sitting in this laboratory getting dosed of psilocybin. Like, like, I grew up here, my parents were like this, I went to school there. and you know, Very clinical background. Sort of, yeah, but it's more, it's, it tends to be, I don't know, if it's, it's not quite informal, but it's, um, but it tends to also just go deeper in a lot of ways than regular right. psychotherapy yeah. does. Part of it is because usually for a lot of the studies, it's two, three to four hour sessions. And, you know, like when's the last time you spent like four hours in a row with a therapist? Right. You know, like that, that sort of opens the, the door for a lot of people to feel much more open than they normally do with than, than they might have felt with other sorts of treatment providers or you get like 50 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. There. I mean, it's honoring the fact that it, it takes time to build trust. Exactly. In that rapport. Exactly. So, um, and what, like, you know, of the sessions that I've been a part of, like it's, I've heard multiple times people say like, you know, I've never told that to anybody. Like not even my therapist who I've known for, for like years, you know, and we're like, so it's, it's a really kind of unique type of environment and a, and a unique kind of relationship that's built. And part of it is just like the fact that you, you know, the person is faced with this big unknown, right? Like, and we're trying to get them ready for it and we're sort of making ourselves um, available to them as, as, as helpers or guides throughout this very unusual kind of experience of, you know, people just feel compelled sometimes to be more open than they normally would. Right. And maybe that has something to do with, with why this experience is so potent for some people, right? 
Um, so, so part of it is, is sort of this rapport building. Part of it is just this life history that we get a sense of when we meet with somebody. Um, and you had asked, you know, like, well, how do you, I think were you asking, you know, just how do you decide whether somebody is appropriate for this or whether it's a good idea? Yeah, right, because you're dealing with people who may be living with depression or major mm -hmm. depression, mm -hmm. and if they are still in a really negative place, will that lead to a negative outcome? So, I mean, part of the other, part of the other thing to say there is that even before they get to this preparation phase, they go through a ton of screening. Um, okay. And if, if somebody is in, you know, often, like for, for many pharmac uh, pharmacotherapy studies, you know, if people are so severely depressed that they're having, like, serious suicide ideation, they might be excluded from that study just because they might be in too vulnerable of a spot to participate in that. Not saying that they, like, couldn't someday do it, but it's we, we sort of avoid doing that. Uh, for now, we don't really know what would happen if we gave it to people with severe SI, suicidal ideation. Um, so part of that determination happens even before the preparation. Um, right. But you're right, you know, like, is there, are there people with depression more likely to have what's called a challenging experience? Um, I mean, one thing we know about challenging experiences in general is that um, they're not uncommon. So in healthy people in our center, the, the rate at which somebody reports that they have a very significant period of anxiety, um, paranoia, or dysphoria, or just feeling awful, is something on the order of like 25 to 30%. So a lot of people actually say that they, this is a very challenging experience that they go through, or at least part of the day is challenging. Right. Um, on, the, on the plus side, though, having a challenging experience is not actually associated with um, the potential for positive outcomes. So people can have a challenging experience and actually come out and say like, wow, like that was really hard and really intense, but actually like I feel so much better now. And um, sometimes people might say like, you know, I'm glad I was able to like overcome that. And maybe part of the therapeutic benefit is just sort of like proving to yourself that you can endure really challenging experiences. You know, part of that is just how it's in part is how therapy works too, right? When you're in therapy, you can have a lot of really intense emotional experiences come up and you can a lot of people sort of prove to themselves that they can tolerate all sorts of different affective states. And it's kind of, it's almost like a victory in some sense, right? That you're actually able right. to feel those feelings that you thought that maybe you were, you couldn't, you couldn't handle. But in, in typical psychotherapy, those, nobody would really say, well, I think you're too depressed for this therapy. For yeah. To have talk therapy with you. Right. But it sounds like, if you're concerned about the set, the mindset of one, I guess that's what I'm asking. Like, where do you draw the line? Like, Ooh, you are too depressed for me yeah. to allow you into this research or, well, you're the perfectly depressed person. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it is just the, uh, you know, part of it is just about research design, right on the, right now we're just trying to, to determine whether this is a treatment that can work for people who are depressed. And so, yes, we do have to say on the one hand, like, we do want people who are actually depressed. And so there is sort of like a minimum threshold of, of how depressed somebody needs to be in order to get into some of these studies, because if you're not depressed then we're not really studying what happens to people with depression. Right. Right. Um, and on the, and on the other extreme of that is that somebody could be so severely depressed that they might, might be at increased risk of a negative outcome. And we don't want right. to necessarily at this early stage of research say, 
that they should go through something like just because we don't really know what's going to happen. It doesn't mean that it's it's unsafe. That it, right. it will definitely be unsafe to do. Like an example is um, ketamine, for example. Right. So ketamine's kind of been in the news a lot lately, in part because there's this new um, uh, drug as ketamine, which is kind of a, a it's very similar to regular ketamine that's been used for for a long time, but it can be administered more easily. Um, yeah. And we know that ketamine actually helps with reducing suicidal ideation, but we only know that because we people like set out specifically to study that, you know, what happens to suicidal ideation right. um, and people who have it after they take ketamine. But it's a very high risk study to do. And right now we're just sort of in this phase two kind of exploratory kind of uh, part of the research, right? So like one day we might actually find that somebody might do a study and people who are so severely depressed they're having suicidal ideation. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened someday. And they might find that it actually is very helpful. Um, I certainly hope it gets to that point at some time where Johns Hopkins or somebody is, is able to study that because just hearing the fact that that there is such a quick positive reaction typically to mm-hmm. one dealing mm-hmm. with depression by from the psilocybin like that would be incredible for somebody who's going yeah. through suicidal ideation on a daily right. basis, right? To be right. able to, to have one session and to, to have those dissipate would be an incredible experience. Yeah. And comparing like ketamine to psilocybin, for example, you know, it's, it seems like both can rapidly improve symptoms, but the difference seems to be that ketamine's effect dissipates very quickly, right? So ketamine kind of resembles requires a treatment schedule kind of similar almost to ECT where you have like a bunch all in a row and you kind of space them out. So you're getting them, you know, like it's at first it could be a couple times a week, maybe once a week, but maybe once every two weeks, once a month. But with psychedelics, so far it seems like people after just one or two doses have long-term benefit, which is really remarkable and hasn't really been demonstrated for other kinds of treatments. Are you able to say how long it's beneficial for and if and when they might need a second second dose? Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm actually writing up that data right now. So we earlier, um, well, I guess this, this point is last year, uh, November of last year, we published the results from um, a depression trial that had happened a couple that finished up uh, last year. Um, and it was the primary results where we showed what happens at one month. And so right now I'm working on putting together the data for what happens over a year-long period. Um, and so far, it seems like those benefits generally um, carry forward for a very long time, in many cases through one year. But a lot can happen in a year, right? So some people go back on medications in that time. Some people go back to therapy. Um, but in general, people are doing significantly better um, than they were at the beginning of the treatment, even though it's been months or even a year out. Right. And then would you propose possibly, okay, after a year is it typically a time for a second dose? Yeah, we we don't really. That would be a separate study, I think. Just sort of saying, right. it's probably different for each person. Right? Some people do relapse at some point. Yeah, and we don't have a great idea of what can predict that kind of relapse just yet. So far, there doesn't seem to be any clear predictors of that. Well, and there are so many factors, right, that relate to possible depression. So. Yeah. Somebody may be in your trial, and then they're dealing with a spouse who passes away right, three right. months later. Right. <laughs> Everyone's very different. That's sort of like the right. You know, we right. can work really hard to standardize this kind of research, but at the end, like mental health issues are just so um, unique to each person, right? You yep. have to work 
with what's going on specifically with that person. And so ultimately, it's always hard to study um, mental health issues for that reason. For sure. Absolutely. So you mentioned a couple of people in the room. I'm thinking those are the guides. Right. So um, there's so there's two guides usually. Um, and can you speak to their role? To their role in the in the procedure. And, yeah. So um, they're you know the the people who are selected as guides are they follow the person throughout the entire study. So they're there during preparation, during the drug administration day, and then during follow up visits. So they're they're always there basically. And again, part of their role is to just ensure that the person is physically, psychologically safe during the during the, the drug administration day. And then after that, they help the person, um, quote unquote, integrate the experience that they had. So sort of work with what they what they felt and what they experienced and sort of try to take some of the insights that they had or work with kind of the new feelings or the new way of being that's kind of come about to sort of do their best to um, integrate that into their lives and to help them have this long lasting kind of benefit from it. And that's on a separate day from actually receiving the psilocybin. Right. So on the, so the actual drug administration day, we tell people, you know, this is the day to sort of let your intellect go out, play in the playground for a little while because what, you, what your job is on the session day is to just have the experience and we'll analyze it and intellectualize it later. And the guide typically isn't speaking at all during their experience? So um, there's, it's usually a very non-directive kind of day. You know, like we say everything we have to say kind of in the preparation sessions. Right. Um, if somebody's having, usually we'll check in from time to time, just be like, what's going on? How are you doing? Do you need anything? If somebody's having a really hard time and could benefit from um, some more support during that period, then we offer that and sort of help them, remind them of kind of some techniques that we discussed beforehand about you know, grounding yourself, breathing, things like that. Um, and so if needed, that's there, but we don't really do very much to analyze the experience or sort of interpret what happened until um, the next day and you know, the subsequent meetings that happen after that. Right. So it, it's not actually like talk therapy going on during their sessions. Right. It's really just an internal experience. They've got their blind blindfold. That's not the proper word, I know, but the eye shades on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an internal experience. So is this different than, I've heard the term, psychedelic-assisted therapy? Is, is that different? Is that actually like talk therapy while a psychedelic experience? So this, what, we, what we've been talking about, I would think of as psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. I think you might be thinking okay. of, um, so like back in the 50s and 60s, they differentiated between um, kind of what we're doing, which is giving people a high dose, letting them have the experience and interpreting it later. There's something called psycholytic therapy in which people would have, they would receive a lower dose of psychedelics and then actually have what resembles normal talk therapy while they're under the influence. So that actually hasn't really been studied very much uh, in the modern kind of era. Okay. Um, And there wasn't really, I haven't come across a ton of great research studies about psycholytic types of therapy. Right. Um, But the idea with that was that, you know, this can kind of help people break down their defenses more rapidly and sort of get to a point in psychotherapy that um, would take, you know, months or years sometimes to get to much more quickly. Um, right. But it's not really that well studied. 
Can can you tell us a little bit also about it's kind of been a buzzword and it's been in some literature recently microdosing because what you're doing at Johns Hopkins is not considered microdosing, right? Yeah, we're doing macrodosing. <laughs> right, dosing. right. And do you know much about microdosing or or its impact on maybe mental illnesses? Yeah, so microdosing has been a buzzword, like you said, um, and it's sort of been popularized and kind of, you know, as like a possible, I don't know if you call it a productivity booster, just sort of like a, you know, a lot of these people in Silicon Valley are very interested in it and sort of publish their, you know, regimens about like, oh, I'm taking this many micrograms of LSD this many days a week. And um, they, so what it means is they're taking a, a sub-perceptual dose of LSD or psilocybin or in some cases ibogaine or other kinds of psychedelics. Um, what they're trying to do is take a dose that's low enough that they can actually go about their normal daily activities, which is kind of dangerous because it's very easy to miscalculate something like that. So often, not often, but in some cases people could take what they think is a microdose and actually be taking a macrodose and you know, getting behind the wheel of a car doing your job can be dangerous in that case. Um, we haven't had, there haven't been any studies of microdosing for depression. There have been a couple of small laboratory studies just looking at the acute effects of what happens when somebody takes a microdose, right? So, but that's different than microdosing typically is in the, in the, you know, in the natural world where people are taking it like every other day for weeks or months, um, so we don't really know exactly what happens. There's, you know, if you look at self-report, there's a lot of surveys out there that have happened where people say, oh, yeah, this has really helped my anxiety or my depression. Um, but again, that's self-report. It's not, we don't really know anything about what diagnosis or lack thereof those people have. Um, it can still interact with medications that you're on. It's really hard to get an accurate idea of what people are actually taking. Um, the other concern there is there is a safety concern also with microdosing that I should mention, which is that there's a concern that psychedelics in general might actually have the potential to cause heart problems, um, in particular like uh, heart valve pathology, like um, creating like leaky valves and things like that. Um, and it might uh, there's the potential that microdosing, because it's done on a regular basis over a long period of time, might might actually create a higher risk for those kinds of problems. We don't really know yet, um, but theoretically that may be the case where it's actually, right. it might be in some ways um, taking a large dose just a couple of times might actually be safer in more ways than just you know, than, than what we've outlined. Um, right. So we don't really know yet what's what, what happens with microdosing. The other trouble in studying that is that you'd have, right now the only way that we can study psychedelics is just in the laboratory. Right? We, we watch somebody like a clock while they're on them. But for microdosing studies, you might need to, like, you know, would you want to keep them in the lab for months on end and just watch them continuously? Like, it's extremely expensive. Yeah, that or maybe have them wear a helmet with a GoPro so they can like, <laughs> see their daily activities. <laughs> yeah, it's totally inconspicuous, right? <laughs> So here's, you know, another question I wanted to get back to regarding the process. So when a person has their eye shades on, they've taken a macro dose of psilocybin, mm -hmm. it seems that music is an important part of the experience. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could share a bit about that. And I would imagine that it must be standardized, like everybody, mm -hmm. in order for the research to be 
um, you know, done properly? I would imagine it has to be standardized and it's not a choice for people. Yeah. So that's a great question. It's a, it's sort of folds into the question of set and setting, you know, what is the optimal set of conditions that somebody should be under in order to do this experience. And actually just a few days ago, um, a colleague published a paper about just that where they, um, within one of their experiments within smoking cessation, they actually took, they, they experimented a little bit with different kinds of music. Um, so the default playlist at Hopkins, it's been around since in some form or another since like we started doing this. Um, it involves a lot of classical music, some world music, most of it, some chanting, you know, things like that. It doesn't, it usually doesn't involve um, words in English. Um, some studies use different playlists, like for example, this USONA multi-site study that we're a part of has their own specific playlist. It's quite different to our standard one, but in some ways has, this, has some similar tracks. But in this recent study that we uh, that was just published by Matt Johnson, um, Al Garcia, Justin Strickland coming from out of our lab, they took a look at, you know, is there a difference between people's experiences if we use this classic music playlist, which is our default playlist, versus this like gong kind of um, less you know rhythmic or harmonious music or whatever, just like literally just like overtones of like sounds. And they didn't really find, um, I, don't, I don't think they found a significant difference between either group. In some cases, people preferred one or the other. Um, I think in some studies, they also allowed people to pick their own music for part of it. So we're still kind of figuring out exactly what music is optimal. I suspect that it varies from person to person. Like Some people hate classical music. In that case, why on earth would you want to subject them to like eight hours right. of, of music that they hate? But right now, yeah, we don't really usually offer them a choice. So most of our protocols, it's like, well, this is the standard playlist. We can turn the music up or down. You just tell us you know, what you prefer. And interestingly, people can't always predict how they would feel about it. So, like, you know, we have some patients who say, like, oh, I really love classical music, and they go through it the first time, and they're like, wow, I hated that playlist. Right. And then they, then they have their second session, they're like, wow, like, holy cow, was that even the same playlist? And I'm like, yep, yeah, that was the same one. And they're like, I loved it. It was like the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Um, if they're in the middle of a session and they believe the music may be contributing to a challenging experience, are they able to tell the guide, like, hey, can we change this up? Um, so it depends. Like, we will, we'd always be able to turn it down um, to, like, almost, like, an inaudible level. But okay. In some cases, we're not allowed to skip it. Depends on the protocol. In some cases, we can skip it or skip back and forth and go to their preferred or pre-selected handful of music tracks. Right. right. Are there any kind of ethical considerations that you have in the research of psychedelics? I would imagine there must be. There's a ton, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> right. Um, and are they difficult to adhere to and so forth? Well, I mean, do you have any specific types of ethical considerations I, that you have in mind? I, you know, the only reason it came to my mind really is just so much controversy over psychedelics, right? Mm -hmm. And how the, the government clamped down and it was made so difficult to get your hands on mm -hmm. on psychedelics and, and there was a concern of the dangers and it was out in the public. And mm -hmm. so uh, I, I don't, I can't even think really of anything specific. I'm just wondering how close do you come to crossing the lines of ethics in the Johns Hopkins research or do you completely 
stay as far away from any kind of ethical concerns at all. And one ethical, here's a, a more specific one. I know in early research in the 50s and 60s, they the therapists, it seemed, would take psychedelics because mm-hmm. they didn't feel, they felt like it was unethical to give mm-hmm. a patient something that they had not experienced themselves. Mm-hmm. That, okay, so that's a great question. Um, so that's a that's an area of debate right now. Um, I usually frame that question with the fact that psychedelics kind of live in this borderland between psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy, right? There's like, in part, it's obviously a drug. In part, there's this huge psychotherapy component with setting, integration, preparation that happens around it. Um, And so on the one hand, like people undergoing psychotherapy training, in many cases, part of that training is to undergo a psychotherapy yourself, right? However, for, you know, a psychiatrist, like in order for me to prescribe lithium or Haldol or Zoloft, like I don't have to have taken those substances in order to prescribe them, right? So it's kind of like, well, do we really need to, to, to have people take those medications in order to, um, to give them to other people? At our center, we, um, and, and people have handled this in different ways, in different protocols. So, um, for example, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, who did a lot of, and are currently doing research with MDMA, which is, it's not it's not in the same category as psilocybin LSD. It's not a classic psychedelic. It works a little bit differently, but in some cases, it's, off, it's sometimes considered as like a hallucinogen, having some similar kinds of properties. And the protocol for administering MDMA is quite similar to psilocybin, where you have this preparation and this, you know, two guides and blindfold and headphones. So in that protocol, I think a subset or maybe all of them, I'm not sure if it's all their guides, but some of them actually did receive MDMA as part of their therapist training. Um, and yeah, and so, but that's not the case in most of this research. So, but, but I do think it is important for guides to have some sense of like an altered state. And there's many ways to achieve an altered state like that, right? So somebody could be a, meditator, they can be a yogi, a practitioner of, um, you know, breathing exercises, things like that. Um, so for example, in, so in, in most studies at Hopkins that are not affiliated with this big multi-site sort of center, you know, we say that the guides in these studies should have some experience with yoga, meditation, um, or some sort of altered state. For USONA, uh, which is this multi-site study that we're part of, part of the facilitator training actually did involve holotropic breath work. It's sort of this kind of breathing exercise that in some people can produce an altered state similar to a psychedelic induced altered state. And so in order to have been a, a guide, you have to have undergone this and you have to have guided for somebody else who's undergoing this. But it's, but it's an open question basically of what, you know, what, what should the qualifications be to be a guide? And on the one hand, you can, you can understand sort of both positions, right? On the one hand, like, of course, you want somebody guiding you who knows the lay of the land and can sort of say or recognize when you're having a difficult experience or sort of knows what to say or how to, how to help you through that. On the other hand, kind of similar to other pharmacotherapy, like I don't, just because I, you know, I don't personally take an antipsychotic doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to prescribe them, right? Right, right. So and we don't so, know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. So 
And it sounded like you were speaking to the guides in particular. How about the researchers, the doctors like yourself? Is there ever talk that someone like yourself should take and experience psilocybin if you're doing the research around it? Well, I mean, because I'm a clinician, I have functioned as a guide um, as well as a researcher. But I don't know that you necessarily need to, you know, as you can imagine, like to be a scientist, you need a certain level of objectivity. That's been like one criticism of all this research of psychedelics is that it's really biased and people, some of the people who are doing this work, like, you know, have a predetermined idea of what will happen. And sort of there's, there's a lot of sneaky ways that a person's bias can, can work its way into Right. research right and you and you want to be as objective as possible so i think actually for researchers maybe i don't know <laughs> like for guides it might make sense for researchers i don't know that it necessarily does but part of that overlaps when you get into clinical research well and and you know that reminds me of a question i wanted to ask regards to set and setting i've done a little bit of reading where people question whether the setting that is actually created is almost helping support a placebo effect in order for a, you know, someone receiving the psilocybin mm-hmm. to then have a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. And is that, is that almost like leading them to that? Great question. I've written a paper about just that, about like, well, um, you know, and I think it, it kind of goes back to the similarities and overlap between psychedelic assisted therapy and just psychotherapy in general, um, in which, you know, when, when you think of placebo effect, you know, the term placebo basically means that you're getting some benefit from treatment that is not related to like a physical change that happens as a result of the drug. But in psychotherapy, there is no physical, like everything that happens in psychotherapy is a result of some non-physical process, right? And so what really, you know, in that case, what really is a placebo effect? And that kind of, that, that idea of a placebo breaks down when you're studying psychotherapy, because how do you develop a placebo for psychotherapy? People have tried, you know, they've sort of developed, right, well, maybe we can have like a bare bones psychotherapy and compare that to, you know, Freudian analysis. And actually it turns out there's it's almost equal efficacy there. Um, and so it's very, very hard to develop a true placebo with psychotherapy and because there's so much psychotherapy and psychedelic assisted treatment that that, that that concept almost kind of also breaks down right because even like for example and right now we're studying we're comparing right high dose psilocybin session versus um, active placebo session I mean, the active placebo is something called niacin it's it's a b vitamin it gives you like a flushing sensation and has some similarities between like the physical effects of psilocybin when it's coming on but the majority of people will be able to accurately tell you whether they received psilocybin or placebo. Right? Part of placebo is that you don't know what you're getting, when, but we're like sort of, in some cases, it's very obvious what the person's getting. It's obvious to both the patient and the guides. And does that in, impact how, uh, you know, how the person perceives that treatment? Like, of course it does. Um, so it's a really complicated issue. And, um, you know, the gold standard of research uh, in mental health and in other areas of medicine is this placebo-controlled trial. But it might actually be, like, similar to psychotherapy research where it's almost impossible to do a, a proper and adequately controlled placebo-controlled study with psychedelics. It might just be that there's, you know, it might just not really make sense. It might not be the best kind of research to do. Perhaps the research needed is, like, 
comparing psilocybin-assisted treatment with treatment as usual, standard care, that might actually be more valid right, than trying to do right. this placebo-controlled thing. Because you can imagine also, like, let's say somebody goes into the study, they're very excited about getting this, you know, very highly spoken of treatment, and then they know or feel very strongly that what they got was placebo, then that can actually have what's called a nocebo effect. That can be a harm to the person. Like, well, I went through all this trouble, I got nothing. It sort of further adds to their demoralization. Right, um, right. So it's a huge problem in, in sort of the design of these studies. Um, and there are ways to control for it, you know, study design, but that's a long and complicated discussion. Yeah. Could it be argued, though, that the, the pre-meetings before receiving psilocybin could be a part of the placebo ex effect because the guide may be sharing with them the expectations of, of sure. what yeah. a trip is? And, and I don't even, I mean, personally, I think even if there is a placebo effect, what's wrong with that? There's no, exactly, I, don't, yeah. I don't think any there's any harm for a placebo effect. And a lot of people claim that antidepressants part of the reason they work is the placebo effect yeah exactly i mean i think we're you know there's a whole area of study now specifically of the placebo effect um, right and like there's an there's a conference this year the society um, i forgot their, their acronym sips but it's something cited placebo studies yeah and they're like what they're trying to figure out well how can we harness this placebo effect and leverage exactly, it the treatment exactly exactly yeah i was thinking like if if there is a placebo effect, wouldn't it be better that we, like you said, harness the placebo effect and utilize it to yeah. allow more people to actually have that, reach that mystical level right. when taking psilocybin, if we know reaching that level is beneficial? Yeah. And I think that actually touches on an ethical issue, right? The fact that psychedelics, you know, in some sense, they, they're thought of as this kind of amplifier, a non-specific amplifier of consciousness or whatever you you know, whatever you put in into the set part of the equation affects what happens in, in the long-term outcomes. And so that kind of gets into the question of like, well, you know, what exactly should we be telling people? Um, right. There's all sorts of different ideas about what psychotherapy is the best psychotherapy. You know, the Jungian analysts think that the Jungian stuff is the best and the Freudian people think the Freudian stuff is the best, but like, those things are not necessarily, we can't prove that what, whatever Freud described is actually what's real, you know, and so right. are people going to be injecting their weird idiosyncratic ideas about the psyche or the mind into, into the experience for people? Can that potentially have harms? Yeah. Um, so that's sort of one ethical area about, you know, this, and the fact that the relationship, the therapeutic relationship can be um, more intense than in normal psychotherapy, right? There's like this tremendous... You know, power differential it's like that happens with this right? where somebody's just so vulnerable in the yeah. of taking one of these drugs that you really have to make sure that the people who are watching over somebody when that's being administered are behaving in an ethical manner which is probably another great reason to have a second person there right exactly yeah, yeah. um so you have mentioned kind of the the positive outcomes some of the I think you call them challenging experiences mm -hmm. or negative outcomes. Do you have any specific numbers you can share with us re regarding a particular study with psilocybin? Um, so uh, about like positive outcomes? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so for I guess for depression specifically, that's kind of what your audience is interested in. So in our yeah. 
in the paper published um, at the end of 2020, where we showed the results for like, the one week follow-up and one month follow-up after two high dose sessions, um, something like 70, around 70% 70 of people were able to achieve clinical response, meaning that they had a 50% or greater reduction in their um, Hamilton depression rating scale. It's sort of one, it's a clinician administered measure of how severe somebody's depression is. So 70, around 70% 70 of people at one month were met criteria for having a clinical response. And something like, uh, somewhere between 50 and 60% of people were in remission. So that's, um, that's the data from the one month time point of our most recent study. Um, right. And, you know, there's other, the, the initial study that was done in um, depressed people came out of the UK, out of um, the Imperial Research Group. That was an open label um, study, and it showed kind of, you know, similar numbers of remission and response. But one difference between that study and ours is that we actually had a weightless control. So a weightless control um, helps to control for the fact that depression gets better over time, right? And is it just the fact that people would have, would have gotten better anyway at one month? And is that what we're seeing? So right. when people entered our study, they were placed randomly on either an eight-week delay period or to get the treatment immediately. And so at the eight-week delay, um, compared to the immediate treatment group, there was a, a very significant difference. You know, the delayed group was, had similar rates of depression. So when they entered the study compared to the immediate treatment group that had these these rates of remission and response that changed dramatically. Right. What about percentage of people with negative outcomes? And I know you talked about some having a challenging experience that mm -hmm. still had actually really positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. Is, do you have any sense of how many have had the, a negative experience with a negative outcome? So I'm just trying to think of the way that that data was reported. You know, when we think of a negative outcome in that study, we think of somebody who just didn't respond Right. And there were, right. out of 24 people, uh, there were a handful who just never responded at any time point. Um, to my knowledge, those people did not necessarily have this challenging kind of dysphoric experience. Right. Um, I think, I don't, I don't have the numbers on hand exactly, but a, a large percentage of people did report a challenging experience. Um, a majority of those people did end up actually clinically responding. So kind of similar to what we saw before, even though somebody might have had a, a hard anxiety-provoking or dysphoric kind of experience, they're still able to have experience and benefit at the end. Right. So I think my last question for you is how, if all things go as hoped, how quickly could we see psychedelics being used to treat depression in the yeah. mainstream? So, um, you know, like I said, the, 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 the task now is to go through the process that every drug has to go through to be a, a approved for clinical use by the FDA, which is to right. do these phase two studies, which is where we're at now. It has to be yeah. by a phase three study, which is larger, involves more people. So that could take, you know, potentially could take several years for that to happen. The other question is just how long the legislative process that has to happen after that would take. And I'm, I'm not really sure, honestly, like I've, I've thought about right. this. And I don't really know. It can happen in a number of ways. It could be voted on in Congress. It could be passed as like, you know, an executive order. Um, so it could happen really quickly. It could take a long time. Um, 
hard to say. And then on, on the other side of things is all these legal procedures that are happening in, in local levels, right, where it's being decriminalized, but right. it's still not FDA approved for clinical use necessarily, right? So even though it's not, it's not criminalized anymore, um, a licensed clinician is still not actually able to use those substances. So right. um, there, the one state where that's going to be different is Oregon, who in November they passed a measure that allows for the creation of a committee um, to, to, to figure out how to actually use it therapeutically in a therapeutic setting. So in Oregon, it's actually potentially going to be legal for, for clinicians to use it, which is going to be a little weird because on the federal level, it's still scheduled right. on, it's still, it's still very much, yeah. you know, quote unquote unsafe substance. But, um, I'm optimistic because, you know, these, the two entities that are doing these big trials right now for four major depressive disorder, um, have been working fairly closely with the FDA and the FDA actually issued a breakthrough therapy status for both of them, meaning that the FDA is going to do what they can to expedite um, these, these research studies to get them to a place where they, they're sort of complete, you know, they're not going to sort of put up any extra boundaries or right. obstacles in their way, which is really, oh, that's fantastic. Which is really great. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Gukasian, Hey, I want to thank you for your time. Um, and sure. before we before we leave, I do want to ask you if if somebody is listening to this show and they're going through a terrible time with depression or wondering if they may be struggling with depression or another mental illness and and they don't know what to do, what piece of advice would you give them? I mean, the first the first thing to do is, you know, recognize I guess that this is still an experimental treatment, even though it seems very promising now. Um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about it. You know, there's still a ton of different treatment options available for major depressive disorder. And that could be, you know, oftentimes people, even though trying medications is onerous and difficult, you know, it could take months for, for us to figure out if something works. There are actually so many different options available and it really just takes finding the right clinician or the right um, medication. Even though it could take time, it's certainly possible that, that, uh, that a like a normal clinically approved treatment is going to work for somebody. So the first thing I'd say is, is, is make sure that you're plugged into some sort of care or to find somebody who you jive with in terms of psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy. Um, right. You know, there's even like well, lots of exciting things with like, you know, there's like ketamine now, which can be effective really rapidly. Yeah. Um, it's been around for a while, but now it's sort of more, more in people's forefront because of this S-ketamine approval. There's brain stimulation, there's like TMS, there's um, ECT, which a lot of people, it's, it can be kind of a, you know, it's not thought of as the, the go-to first-line treatment, but it's the most effective treatment that we have for depression. Right. Um, and so I would, I would say that those are things that should be considered and, there's, and then, of course, there's all sorts of different experimental treatments out there. You know, people can go to clinicaltrials.gov to get more information about all sorts of different experimental treatments, not just our own psychedelic work. Um, if people are interested in our research, they can find us at hopkinspsychedelic.org. Um, the two entities that are doing this research with psilocybin right now for major depressive disorder are called USONA Institute. That's U-S-O-N-A. Um, and if you, I think it's usonainstitute.org or .com. You can find information about how to apply to be a participant there. 
And similar to um, the other, the other entity is called Compass Pathways. And if you just put their name into Google, you can find their website too, and sort of see if there might be uh, there might be a site near you that's participating and still active. Right. Um, so I would say check those out. And the other thing is I'll just plug our own research. So at HopkinsPsychedelic.org, we have a couple of survey studies running. In particular, if any of your listeners um, have experience with taking a psychedelic on their own, specifically the psilocybin mushrooms, um, and they've taken that either during or sometime within two years of using an antidepressant, we would love to hear from them because we're trying to understand um, the interaction between antidepressants and psilocybin because we know that they sometimes can interact in a way that can reduce efficacy or be dangerous and we don't really have that. Um, it's not really well studied just yet. So if people have this history of taking psilocybin mushrooms and they've done so while on an antidepressant or within two years of taking an antidepressant, um, we greatly appreciate your participation in our survey at hopkinspsychedelic.org slash AD survey. Wow, that's awesome. Is that something that you may then do a research project on after the survey? Yeah, so we're trying to collect data right now. We have um, a couple hundred responses, but we, we really need more data. So um, Awesome. That's, and there's a, ton, there's a ton of other survey studies on our website, too, that they can just find if they go to hopkinspsychedelic.org. We really would appreciate anyone's uh, participation. Yeah, fantastic. And I would love to put that plug out there, too. Please reach out to Johns Hopkins and help them gather the survey they need to continue with their research. Yeah. You're doing amazing stuff there. And I want to congratulate you again on soon to be a full faculty member there at Johns Hopkins. What Thank a, you, Al. What an awesome, I mean, you're, you've reached your dream already. So that is fantastic. And I really, really appreciate all of the time we spent. I know I wasn't anticipating it being so long. So I can't thank you enough. I also want to throw out a little thank you to Dr. Roland Griffiths, who actually gave me your email. I don't sure. know if I even mentioned that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just uh, really appreciate you and your whole team and the work you're doing. And good luck to you as you move forward. And uh, I'll be watching all your work for sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks again. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression File.